Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This is a podcast that's a part of the Two North FM podcast. And today I am delighted to have Dr. Anika Prather in the studio. Uh, Anika is a colleague, a friend, and the recent um, author of The Black Intellectual Tradition, published by Classical Academic Press. Anika, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. We're going to be talking today about the classical canon. What is it? And who is in it? And why? And probably a few other things that are going to come up during the course of our conversation. Um, the canon, of course, has been a great blessing over mm -hmm. centuries. It's just, uh, from one, one way of defining this, is a collection of literature that's been considered by, by many almost universally yeah. to be good books, kind of an archive of human wisdom, yeah. a treasury yeah. that we would want to keep and pass down to others for the benefit of any generation, mm -hmm. the present generation, the future generation. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection that is growing yeah. and it's kind of alive, isn't it? It's yes. not like a, when, you know, when we think of a list of books that you put it on paper, yeah. it can something about that exercise. I think it does need to be done. We do need lists of books, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that can also kind of relegate it to a page yes. as if you've yep. got it under control. Yeah. Yep. But uh, as we've described it, we've also realized it's alive. And that you've said, even though it's something that's alive and beautiful and gives life, it's something you want to protect. Yeah. In other words, it's not completely fluid. Right. It's not alive in the sense that it's just kind of growing willy-nilly mm -hmm. like a virus going here and there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's alive like an, an organism that is a tree, say, yeah. growing and branching forth. Yeah. Um, and so there's variety already there. So yeah. I want to pass it on to you. I'm thinking a canon may be like a tree. Mm -hmm. That is one thing. Mm -hmm. It's a tree. Mm -hmm. But that tree has many parts. Yes. And the tree is ramifying, growing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it, it changes in season. And it bears fruit. Yeah. yeah. And it sustains us. Mm. So you used the tree analogy in a previous talk, yes. so I'm throwing it back yep. to you. Why is it? Why is that helpful, and, and what does it suggest to you? I think in this season that we're in, in the world, where there's this, this work to be done with diversity or inclusion or what have you, there are these conversations happening about we have to put more on the list. I agree that there needs to be a conversation about that, but I think we have to be very careful because as I said to someone who was, we were having this conversation and I said, well, why don't you just, I think they were talking about going to college. I said, why don't you just go get a degree in English and you can just, you know, have a list. I said, when it comes to the canon, what sets it apart from any other? reading list hmm. and we talked earlier about Mortimer Adler's philosophy I think hmm. many people don't fully understand I think people have made assumptions that he and a bunch of non-black uh, people or people who were not people of color got together and just said we're just going to choose these books hmm. and that's not what happened and I think that's something that people need to understand that there was an actual science to creating this list of the great books of Western civilization that involved thousands and thousands of hours of reading through the books and seeing which books are speaking to which books and building on which books and which thoughts and which themes. 
and then they were cataloged uh, so that we could know um, these sets of books throughout time have consistently had this conversation around this particular theme of love or friendship or um, government. And so if we're gonna protect it, we need to make sure that we're using that standard for how we expand it. Yes, yeah, so you, you mentioned therefore some criteria that Adler and his team used over many years yes. really of study yeah. um, to select books uh, and create not only a list that they published, yeah. but a list beyond the list because they couldn't publish everything. Yeah. They were limited by time, space, and yeah. money, and so on. So, um, in the like, we we pulled out one of the, the yeah. books. Uh, this is one of the books from the. Yeah. yeah, this is not the Syntopticon, but okay. this is Boswell. Okay. But uh, there's the list, uh, like the essay on prudence, mm -hmm. and after after there's a description of how what prudence has been throughout the centuries. There is a list of, of books in the collection that you could go to yeah. and read on various subtopics mm -hmm. under the general topic of prudence. Mm -hmm. And then there's another list yeah. of this. books that you could read that aren't published in the yes. set, uh, just showing that the, the list was pretty large. And it's, it's a list that's larger than any one person can master yeah. and study. So yeah. if we can't even read everything in mm. the canon as, as they're listing it, what does that mean for our study? I know. I mean, Mortimer Adler, even he has a kind of a guidebook to his collection. So you can know. And what he does is in this book, it's not in print anymore, but you can usually find it on eBay no. or Amazon as a used book. I have a copy of it. The first part of it maps out each author and how they build on the other. Mm -hmm. And the second part is the reading list. And according to him, it would take you about 10 years to finish all of the books. I see. So of course, it's. I think he knew, but I think his idea was being a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. And the question about how do we know what to read, I have a hard time answering that because I'm afraid someone will say, okay, Anika and uh, Chris said to do this and that's what I will do. It's a right list for all times, all regions, all places, all languages, that would be ludicrous. We just can't yeah, do that. Yeah, we can't, but what we can say is what I feel Mortimer Adler was doing for humanity was saying, um, I, it wasn't necessarily that he was saying everything else is wrong and horrible and inferior. I am choosing not to interpret his work mm -hmm. in that way. But for educational purposes and for educating the next generation, he was saying, we have done all these thousands of hours of research so that every family member can know these are the books that have shaped the mindset of the world mm. and of America. And if you could have access to this literature and, and read it for yourself, you will build more and more your literacy of, of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Actually, it protects us from the very binary way the world is right now. Mm. Because reading through this is opening you up to so many different philosophies and thinking mm. that you can be in conversation with. And so I think it's not so much how do you know. I think that's something... Um, I think we start first start off with saying, you know, this is a very authentic system for reading. And if you can trust that, then you are you have to decide what would work for you. You have to make some prudent decisions about yeah. what you can do with yeah. 
the children you have, the school you have, where you are, yeah. place and time. And I, in my experience, going visiting lots of classical schools, there there are not identical reading lists. Yeah. And another thing I've noticed, for example, one school might read all of Dante, all three books of the Divine Comedy, and another will say, well, we don't want to read Virgil too and Homer. We can't get this all done, yeah. so we'll just read the Inferno. Yeah. And then you know, we'll read the Aeneid. And then, so and schools are trying to, and how many schools read Paradise Lost? Yep. Do you get to read yep. every one of right. the epics? Time and resources yep. uh, require different kinds of adjustments. And so there can be like a garden, a number of beautiful gardens that are yep. different. Yep. But I'm thinking about uh, also the distinction between reading great books that are a part of the accepted, received canon of great literature mm -hmm. that, say, Adler would put on a list for us, mm -hmm. and good books that are outside of it that might still be worth reading. Yeah. And I think those are two different questions, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. in a classical homeschool or school, you might want to read X percentage of all of your books yeah. from the received canon. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe not 100%. Right. right? I'm thinking about how Lewis says, yeah. now he may be speaking to adults and not eighth graders, yeah. but he says for every uh, old book, you, er, new book mm -hmm. you read, read an old book, mm -hmm. almost alternate 50-50. Mm -hmm. So Lewis seems to think we should be reading some contemporary yep. literature, but I think sometimes there's some confusion. Boy, if you were to read, say, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, right. she's a contemporary living artist, uh, a great novelist, right. in my opinion. She right. won a Pulitzer Prize for that. Yeah. She's a Christian novelist, amazing woman. Mm -hmm. If you were to add that to your 12th grade literature list, are you adding that to the canon? Mm. My, my answer would be no. No, no. But you're reading another good contemporary book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hopefully your reading of the canon is helping you to make a wise choice about yeah. a contemporary book that you can't yet even judge is going to be a part of the canon yeah. in, say, the next 100 years. Yeah. I think reading from the canon helps us identify what good books to read. So, you know, I have my students often read Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. It's a phenomenal book. And I think I have identified that as a quality book to read based on my experience from reading from the canon. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of, the canon gives you a familiarity with the quality in which people tell human stories. Uh. And, and, and that notion of Ones that, that talk about the universal questions. Because sometimes a book could be really good, but you can tell there's an agenda to make you accept a certain ideology. And that is kind of forced on you in the book. And I, I have actually started out reading a book. It's really good. Once I begin to feel myself kind of trapped into thinking one way about something, I automatically know wait, I don't think this is the book I need to be reading. That's interesting because often in the canon, and Adler and others will say this, what you find in the great conversation of the canon is an engagement of those ideas. Yes. Right? So yes. you would you would find a Machiavelli yep. talking about virtue and maybe disparaging it and, yes. and, and trying to reinterpret the yes. virtue tradition. But he's dealing with Aristotle, he, right? Yes. He's, he's, he's not trying to hide it. Yes. So they're having the argument, they're having the conversation, and you're invited in. Mm -hmm. Kindred by Octavia Butler. Like it had me, whenever a book makes me so curious about so many different things I thought I understood is when I know I've gotten a good book or a book of the canon. Mm -hmm. so, so I thought 
I had a pretty clear understanding on race relations. Her book made me question that thinking about our interconnectedness and how we really can't fight it and that, um, and the dangers of fighting it. Like you could actually mess up the future mm. if you keep fighting it. And that in this process of wrestling with our interconnectedness, you may lose a piece of yourself, mm. but you are still whole mm. and meaningful. And so um, books that cause me to wonder more. Yeah, I think it's when the book evokes me to think and ask myself more questions. Yeah, asking, you mentioned the universal questions, and then um, you're reminding me of how Adler talks about the qualities of the true, good, and beautiful. Mm -hmm. That books that help, and as he describes truth, books that help us to see what's real, yeah. see so that our thoughts might as much as possible approximate the real state of affairs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For him, that's mm -hmm. one way of thinking of truth. Maybe yes. you call it the correspondence theory yeah. of truth. But he's he's not shy about that. Mm -hmm. Great books are trying to help us understand reality. Yeah. We can never understand it completely or totally, but a great book is helping you to see something mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. And I think what you were describing from Oct Octavia Butler is the same idea. Yeah. You, begin, you, you were able to see in a, a, a fresh way that maybe caused wonder mm -hmm. uh, that black and white, we're, we are we are interconnected yeah. despite whatever differences and difficulties we are yes. of a common yes. shared heritage. Yes, yes. And these are, and, and, it, and they challenge you. Um, another thing I did in my dissertation was um, another part of the etymology of the word great was it grates. Mm -hmm. It's G-R-A-T-E-S. It, oh. it, it is constantly rubbing against. It's a friction and a yes, challenge. Yes, there's a friction and a challenge to it. So many times people have misunderstood the word great when we say great books as to saying it's better, but they challenge your thinking. Yeah. They grate against what I thought I knew mm -hmm. to be true. And they make me go on this journey to uncover these hidden truths that maybe my own experiences have blinded me from seeing. Um, and so when I choose a book, it, um, it raises those, those kinds of questions for me, like um, a good book. And this is when we talk about children's book. So at my school, we do this thing called the common read yeah. and we do it so that we could do it school wide. It's done with children's picture books. So even the older kids do it. And we have this big discussion together three times a year on a book. And so I try to pick diverse books. And so we did this book called Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. And it's a wonderful book, but the book caused you to really have a conversation with one another, ways we can stand up for what we believe in. Like this wasn't a book to indoctrinate my students mm -hmm. to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. It was a book about Herschel's courage to stand up in the face of these demons who did not want him to celebrate Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. And how can we connect that to our human experiences of standing up for what we believe in when everyone else is against you? So are you saying that Christians can read books that are not written by Christians and still learn from them? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, to those in the Christian in the audience who are Christians, that is that's a part of the history yeah. of the Christian faith. Yeah. Augustine being one of the chief examples, who yeah. was a loved Plato, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, and and finds Plato or Clement of Alexandria yes. would say that just as uh, 
the Hebrew scriptures were tutor, a t was like a tutor leading yes. us to Christ. Yes. He says Greek philosophy yes. for the Greeks was like a tutor leading the Greeks to Christ. Well, I mean, to that point, what was Socrates and Aristotle doing? Martin Luther King says that he challenged, he was a, he was a, a, a um, not, he was a gadfly mm -hmm. that challenged um, the aired truths of his time, yeah. which is what got him in trouble. But he didn't just do that to be difficult through reading and wonder and observation and allowing your mind to, to sense what's around you. He began to question the faith that was, that was a part of his culture. And the received opinion. And so he, um, as a result, he came to recognize that there was something um, sometimes I was like, God, you sure Socrates didn't make it in? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he knew, he came to know that there was something. Okay, so Socrates is put to death. He's gone. Aristotle, his student, picks up where he left off. And he writes something like Parts of Animals, where he recognizes through dissecting different animals that each creation has something in themselves that has an essential being. They were created to fulfill a purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, Aristotle was not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But he was beginning to tap into something that there is something out there. A telos, an end. Yes. You know, it's not, nothing is random. Yes. And so great, when I think of the word great books, can you imagine maybe the fear Socrates must have felt when he realized what we're believing is not true. And I have to be the one to tell the world that this is, I might lose my life mm -hmm. by unveiling this truth that all of the world has embraced, right? He was considered a corrupter of youth. Yep, yes. And, and so, an atheist. right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I struggle, I can identify with that mm -hmm. because here I am in a world as a woman who's endured racism, who can see racist, racism play out around her and in her life and in the world around her. And yet I am saying, let's read these books together because I've, I've discovered in history that a lot of people who look like me have read these books to make sense of their situation. And I'm going to be crucified for saying that. <laughs> but that's what great books do. They great rub against what you thought to be true and they challenge you to question. And, and, and Aristotle even said it. He says, um, it's a paraphrase, wisdom begins in wonder. Or he says, I, the only thing that I know is I don't know anything, basically. <laughs> you know, so he says those kinds of things because we become so confident that this is the truth. When we read works of the canon and works that have some of these attributes of the canon, we, are, we, are, we should be saying, or they should drive us to say that let's question what we thought we knew. Yeah. So this prompts me to go back to something you said earlier about protecting it mm -hmm. because why would you know if if it's this, if it's this living tree uh, there's a sense in which we would break the metaphor if we say we can add to it because mm -hmm. you know you don't put an apple on an apple tree right uh, it kind of grows its own apples yeah. so yeah. it's yeah. there's something about the can that has its own independent mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. that we 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 merely recognize mm -hmm. but it is possible, and so it ramifies, it grows, and it changes in ways that are lovely over the centuries. 
but it's of a piece. It's of the same tree. Yeah. But someone could try to chop it down. Yeah. So mm. would you talk about why, why you think it's important to protect it? What do you mean by that? I think that one thing that, and I again, I'm talking about Mortimer Adler's canon. Mm -hmm. I like to clarify that's what I mean. Um, and his his canon kind of can direct you to other. There's I think there's a Catholic canon. There are different canons I know, but different lists. Different lists. Mm -hmm. But I'm for for, um, but I would venture to say that what I'm gonna say about Mortimer Adler's canon is probably true of the others, that when they were established as being a canon, there was some understanding they had about this collection of books and how it will help humanity's understanding mm -hmm. and wealth of knowledge. With regards to Mortimer Adler, when he began to track the conversations that these authors that were having with one another over centuries, began to unveil the realities of our humanness as it really is, that pieced together like a tapestry, we would develop a clear understanding of humanity past, present, and then could project what may happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people misunderstand that as me saying that humanity began in Western culture. That's not true. And the classical authors who wrote didn't feel that was true. They acknowledged that their knowledge came from those who came before them. When we mess up that, we run the risk of diluting that story and that understanding. In other words, if we were to just kind of willy-nilly allow ourselves to say, well, I don't like that, I don't like that, let's just yeah. take, let's cut these books out that and have been read for centuries, and, yeah. and oh, we found a manuscript that nobody's read before, but yes. oh, it happens to be written by somebody that maybe we would like to be rep have yeah. be represented, let's put them in right. by some kind of modern criteria. Yeah. But on the other hand, in our own modern moment, we might have certain concerns. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, like Lewis says, every age goes wrong yeah. in a certain way, yeah. but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so the reading of the old books can correct our own yes. age. And I think so what you're getting at. Yeah. Like you read the old books yeah. and you shed light on your current moment yeah. and you see it in a different light and yeah. you think, maybe I got this part wrong. I mean, I think a good example of that would be Martin Luther King in that jail cell in, Abraham, in, in Alabama. And he has, a lot of times we read letter from a Birmingham jail and we imagine him in a library in his study with his books mm -hmm. writing. But uh, Coretta Scott King describes it in her book, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. She describes his circumstances when he wrote that letter. And he had no paper, no pencil, no books. He was just in a jail cell. And he is sitting there trying to make sense of a situation. He's afraid. That's one thing she talked about, how afraid he didn't know he was going to be lynched. He was terrified. Hmm. Matter of fact, we found, I found that um, in her writing, she talked about how Martin Luther King suffered from severe depression and that he knew most of his life he was going to die tragically hmm. and how he lived in a state of dread constantly because of that. Hmm. But it was in reading the Bible and this collection of literature that he was able to make sense of his situation and he was able to find the words to articulate to help others make sense of his situation. And um, that pa we see that pattern happen with almost everyone. I, there, there, there's a poem written by Phyllis Wheatley about Niobe on the death of her children. And in it, she expresses what a mother goes through when she loses her children. So I can imagine Phyllis Wheatley taken from her mother 
finds this poem and is is able to, she gets some type of healing from recognizing whoever wrote this poem must understand the pain me and my mother must feel. And, and this collection of works, it keeps you from having to do all the investigative work to find out what book can really speak to my soul in this way. Now you're reminding me of, of Douglas reading that dialogue yep. written by yep. Yep. Epictetus, yes. who was himself a slave who was freed and became this philosopher teacher and writes a dialogue of a slave speaking to his master, mm -hmm. arguing for his freedom, mm -hmm. and it's a very persuasive argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As we look at this, this collection of, of a large amount of literature, in a particular moment, like uh, Douglas's moment shortly after the founding, what mid 1800s, mm -hmm. he would he would then say, "What can I read from the canon that would help me today?" Yes. And uh, he could have read Aristotle's yeah. uh, on the parts of animals. Yeah, yeah. And that might have benefited him. Yeah. But reading Epictetus. Yes. Yes. Might have needed to be selected. Yeah. Uh, for that time and place. Yeah. So it seems like the canon's got this flexibility yeah. too. That's another way that it's alive. It it can speak to you yeah. in a particular cultural moment that yeah. you might not be able to predict, and yeah. it's it's there to correct and help and guide and change. The authors, many of the authors, have not been tainted by the racial and societal chains that we have. So when you read it you come face to face with their universality. It's a fresh air, it's like fresh air. It is, it is, when I first started reading from the canon, it was such a relief where I could just read something and just know it was about being human. And you knew they weren't prejudiced by some concern of our particular right. time right. and controversy, right. right? Right. They were speaking from 1800 yep. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and just about something they went through. Yeah. So like if I if I read, I'm I'm just about to finish um, Little Flowers of St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis was not sitting there saying, you know, I'm gonna write this book so white people will enjoy only my literature. I don't want this for black people. He literally was just reading about the writing about the consecrated life. What does it mean to live in a way where you have given up everything in this world for faith? And 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 these are the adventures I went on, when by making that decision. And and that book met me at a time where I needed to have someone reveal to me um, how magical it is to live a life of consecration in that way. The revelations you receive from God, um, how how wonderful it is to give of yourself in service to humanity, to recognize the power of me choosing to live this way could cause somebody else to find redemption in some way. That has nothing to do with the color of my skin or your skin. It becomes at that moment just merely human. Yep, yes. Right? And we've talked about this, that it, it, this tradition is humanitas, yes. one of the words that meant just simply education. There was yes. a time when people like Francis were write, writing outside of our current frame of left and right, mm -hmm, woke mm -hmm, and anti-woke, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, racist, anti-racist. He was he was in a different category. Yep. And, and therefore it comes like a kind of like fresh water yep. or a tonic or... Yes. It, and it's, it, as you say, it's a relief. It's a relief. You're, you can leave the, in some sense, the tensions of our own yes. time. Yep. Hear a clear voice that's speaking to us all as humans. And then yep. when you come back into our time, it gives you a perspective on it that can be something like 
it can either inspire you or yeah. it can be a corrective. Yeah. It can it can confirm yeah. something yeah. in some confirm cases. Something. It liberates you. It yeah. can liberate you in some way. John Frederick Douglass says it liberated me. Mortimer Adler, for example, his his list stops in I guess the late seventies, early eighties, and people are wondering, should we keep building on it? What should we do? He was choosing books that were written in a way that are liberating in that way. And that's why we have to understand how these lists were created before we start trying to expand them. It, it cannot just be, we need more black people. Yeah. It can't not just be, we need more women. It can't, it, those things are important. I, I agree with that, but it, that can't be the only reason we're expanding. We're expanding to continue to grow the body of knowledge that has spanned centuries for the good of humanity. You, so you're reminding me, like we have, right now we're, we're living in an ideological age where there's new ideologies being created, it seems, every year or two. But, you know, if you try to take your particular ideology that somehow has become important to you yes. and then say, I want that in the canon. Yes. You're making a move that's kind of violates the metaphor of it being this living tree that grows. Yes. Um, it, not, that, not that the canon wouldn't inform whatever your ideology right. is. It might challenge it. It might confirm it. You might find something lacking in the canon yeah, for yeah, some reason, yeah. but the canon has established its own authority yeah. that really uh, has has for so long beckoned us to learn from mm -hmm, it before mm -hmm. we would deign to instruct it. Yeah. And that I think is hard for many because we live in a very individualistic age where it's hard to submit to any kind of yeah. any kind of wisdom that is or uh, acclaimed wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Because aren't I wise? Yes. Why should I submit to anything? Yeah. If there, if there were to be criteria for what, you know, the canon means a standard. Yeah. yeah. So there's a criterion. Does, does it measure up or in? And over the years, the, it's, it has evolved mm -hmm. and people have kind of universally said Shakespeare should be in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the standard seems to be, according to Adler, at least one of the standards would be the true, the good, and the beautiful. Yeah. If we were to say the books that are Adler tried to put in the canon are qualified because they bear beautiful fruit that is an attempt to understand reality is true, living living together as humans in a way that is good. I, I think we have to I think we have to define true, good, and beautiful because in this journey I've been on and wanting to have these conversations in the classical education world. When I talk about, we've got to do more to show how these books connect to all people, I have actually been told by leaders in this movement that for right now, we're not going to focus on that. We want to focus on the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so I'm saying, this, so are you saying that there's nothing about people of color or welcoming people of color that would fit that? Seems like the truth, the good and beautiful is human. Is being human, right? And so if we're human, then why aren't we having conversations about how to make this simply magical tradition accessible and welcoming to all? Like, we should all want this. And this can be done without leaving politics. This should be, this can be done without 
um, denying your own heritage. If you're proud of the founding of America because that's the story you have, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. My people survived the founding of America. That's my story, and I'm proud of it. Um, and so I think we have to get out of making people ashamed of trying to bring their story in conversation with this tradition. We almost act like facilitating that is against the true, the good, and the beautiful. But, but, but actually, it is beautiful. It doesn't have to be a move to subvert the tradition yes, of exactly. the canon. Exactly. Because the canon is already human and yes. inclusive, asking yes. universal yep. questions. Yep. And it's, you've also mentioned that it's, it's kind of before the categories of yep. race, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Is that, which is interesting. Yep. It's another way that reading in this tradition can challenge our current and contemporary yep. sensibilities. Yeah. And there's, of course, things we would criticize. Mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. Greeks, for example, mm -hmm. were comfortable with slavery. Yeah, yeah. But they were also, in various ways, saying things kind of like Jefferson did mm -hmm. that challenged it. Yeah. The seeds of its demise were yeah. there, too. Yeah. Like, even the the slaves that the Greeks, Greeks had were not held as racial slaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These differences are lost yeah. on us until you go back on the tradition. Yeah, yeah. How, for how long did I think, as a naive kind of college student, that slavery was had to do with skin color. Mm. I mean, America ushered in this dividing line between color of skin. My mom and dad um, both went to, to Howard University, and they were telling me, even though it was an HBCU, there was this rule called the paper bag test, that if your skin was darker than a paper bag, you may have some challenges getting in to an HBCU. Nanny Helen Burroughs, which is, she was a student of Anna Julia Cooper and went on to start a classical school for, for black girls. And the reason she started a school is because when she tried to go teach in regular schools, these black public schools told her she was too dark, so they wouldn't let her teach. Where did we get the notion that even in the black community, we are colorized? Colorism is there. And that was ushered in from slavery. If you are brown or black, you are inferior, you are less than human, you go work in the fields. Every once in a while, quite often, you would have a master have relations with an enslaved person and they would birth lighter skinned children. And on the plantation, lighter skinned children, I'm going somewhere with this, I hope you all can follow me, lighter skinned enslaved people had certain jobs in the plantation house, doing less dangerous or stressful jobs. Whereas a darker skinned enslaved person, like say someone like Sojourner Truth, who was literally used like a donkey to pull and carry, you know, logs and whatever across mm -hmm. the plantation. Whereas the others got to be in the house taking care of the master's children and cooking. This colorism that was formed through this racist system that was in early America is ushered into the African-American community. And this is what Du Bois said, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, right? There's another line he says, across the color line I glide arm in arm with Balzac and Damas. I summon Aristotle and what soul I will and they all come graciously with no scorn nor condescension. That he's across the color line. He's saying when I read that, 
I am finally free from the colorism that is in my society and that has even permeated, gotten into my own community. I'm free from that. And I felt that when I first picked up a, a work, I finally felt free of that tone. And I'm just looking at humanity, nakedly, purely, right there. And I'm just looking at that story without the, the triggers of being black in America. I'm, when I went to St. John's College, some people asked me, you know, how did you have a good time at St. John's College? Because for the first time, I'm just reading, I'm just sitting down and I'm just talking about the human story. Like, I'm not made to have a discussion about what is it like to be black in America? Like, I just wanna have a conversation about being human. And I wanna hear about how you're human. And then I wanna build relationships that are not tainted by the, the division that we have in our society. Which doesn't mean that you don't come back they, to the question of being black yes, in America, because right. you go back and forth. Yes. And so do we all yes. who've been in part of the classical tradition. Yes, yes. You know who else is free from the color line? Children. Yeah. You know that, right? Yeah. You, know, you get these three-year-olds. They don't know, they don't care. They, they, yeah, and it's just they model for us the kind of delight you can have yep. Yep. to be in a garden yep. of human beings. Yes. Ooh. Different colored flowers. You know, so, and it's better mm. for it. And and so what would happen if we taught without our politics and without our views on race? And we just, there's a rule St. John's has, stick with the text. <laughs> Leave your politics and your worldview at the door. And everybody's Mr. and Miss. Yes. No matter your title yep. or married or not. Yep, yep. The tutor's calling me Miss and I'm calling them Mr. and Miss. And we're just asking questions about the text. At first, it was hard for me to get used to because of my experience. You always feel like you got to kind of give some background knowledge on this, that, and history. But that rule was so liberating once I got the hang of it because it forced me to let go of my walls. Being the only black person in a room to talk with someone who doesn't look like me. And I suspect it, it had the same effect on that other person. What would happen if we brought that into a classroom with children who are already free of that, besides what we put on them. We need to see it. Yes. You're, you're reminding me too of the, yep. the Latin phrase alma mater, mm -hmm. because we're both yes. alumni yes. of St. John's. Yes, yes. So we have the same, we have Loving the same, mother. we have yes. the same, we have the yes. same mother. Yes. So yes. We're siblings. <laughs> uh, we've been studying yes. the same text. Yes. And yep. that does create a kind of. Yep. Sisterhood and brotherhood, it doesn't does. it? It does. It does. And it's really does. and it's free of race. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean that race doesn't have its place, but it's free of yes. it because it's because we're reading the text. The farther back to the ancient world you get, the freer from that you are. Hmm. So, like when you start out in the ancient world, it's just not there. That's right. You're gonna read the Odyssey. You're not. I'm sorry. It's just not there. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint people. <laughs> But if you read Homer, you're not going to find anything racist in there. You're just not. It's just not there. Yeah, and you're going to find that Phasia was a cool place, yes. but apparently Ethiopia was yes, a cool place yes, too. Yes, <laughs> you will. You will find them saying the beautiful black Ethiopians. And when they say the word black, I remember one time we had to read. I think it was Herodotus, mm. um, the histories. As soon as they saw the word black, oh, he said we're black, and they got offended by the word black. And, um, but then there were others who had read the whole text. And so when that came up in the discussion, someone else said, but did you keep reading? He called us black and beautiful. Mm -hmm. She said us. She's, they, 
black and beautiful. Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> so we finished reading the text, finally, and they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I've never read a text written by someone from the European area that would put the word black and beautiful in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. They never experienced that. So when you're in the ancient world, you will you will experience that freedom. And it you may think it's there, it's not there, you just have to release yourself from those grave clothes. It's not there. But as you get farther and farther away from the ancient world, you definitely aren't gonna feel what we feel today, but you will begin to sense a leaving out of other people. Mm -hmm. The ancient world doesn't do the leaving out. They'll talk about Cyrus the Great mm -hmm. from the Middle East. They'll, you know, the Bible talks about everybody: Greeks, mm -hmm. Romans, Jews, Black people, Ethiopian eunuch. Mm -hmm. I mean, Asia, everywhere. But so the farther away you get from the ancient world, um, you may not sense a racial agenda, a racial framework, but you will begin to sense a leaving out of people of color. And I want to be honest about that. Mm -hmm but still not the racially um, unkind things you may find in other literature. But you will notice that the, 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 the conversation may start to narrow a little bit, but what remains the same still in the canon is they continue to use work with the universal questions, mm -hmm. which is why I can read it. And I may recognize when I read Pride and Prejudice, I know the time period that it's set in, somebody brown is somewhere around. <laughs> But she, Jane has, she chose to not include them in this story. But as I'm reading, I don't hear a language that's offensive. And I don't hear um, us being uh, discussed in an inferior way. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Shakespeare wrote Othello. But he also wrote, is it The Merchant of Venice? It's, a, it's one of his plays that has some anti-Semiticism yeah. in it, yes, right? Yes, that's You know, so you, you, it's as you branch out from ancient into medieval, you do feel this freedom of nothing of what we're experiencing is there. Then as you get closer and closer to modern times, when race and the middle passage mm -hmm. and the slave trade has come into being, this, erasure mm -hmm. of us mm -hmm. but the way it's written you're still able to work through the universal questions mm -hmm. and so that's just a reality of it and that's mm -hmm. that's why I'll I say and the reason I'm bringing that up is I don't want to paint this rosy picture as in just read the classes there's no race in there you'll be so happy uh, you'll love Machiavelli right <laughs> but I am trying to say how it works as you branch out, which is all the more reason, because the ancients, our foundation, started out telling everyone's story. Mm -hmm. If you chart Herodotus's journey from Greece all the way around, he traveled when he wrote their mm -hmm. histories. He actually went to these places, back to Greece. Mm -hmm. There was a desire to see all the different shades of the human rainbow. Mm -hmm. When you leave the ancient world, that be, that desire becomes less and less, yes. which is all the more reason why we have to begin to think about, well, what is the system or the framework we need to put into place where we can reintroduce talking about diverse voices like the ancients did? Mm -hmm. That And that's how I, I see it. When we start welcoming those who have been inspired by these texts into the conversation, 
we are going back to that original frame. It's interesting, you know, when you when you use the word diverse voices, it's to me a sadness mm. because right now you can't even use that word yeah. without triggering yeah. a number of people yeah. who think, oh, we know that move. Yes. You're doing DEI stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that means you are clearly on the, yes. just to use the vocabulary, yes. is, like, is labeling you or somehow including you in a political yeah. movement and yeah. ideology. Yeah. Whereas the word diverse is a fine word. Yeah. Uh, gardens are diverse. Yes. Variety is the spice of life yes. in many contexts. Yes. Uh, with unity, uh, a blend of unity and variety mm -hmm. is a that's part of what makes things beautiful. Yeah. But boy, this idea that by returning to the, the classical tradition mm -hmm. of these great voices in this canon, this great mm -hmm. collection of literature, we are kind of relieved and liberated from some of the trappings that we yes. feel, the, the, the being entrapped that we often feel in yes. this moment where it's so partisan, so ideological, yes. so triggering. Yes. We can, we can find the fresh air, the fresh water. Yes. It gives us a new perspective by going back. And by going back, we go forward. Yes. Oh, I love that. It's yes. Sankofa. Yes, that's right. Let's go back and get it. Yes. And uh, Chesterton said somewhere that every revolution is a restoration. Oh. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. You know, he's thinking of how revolve means to come back around again. Yes. Right? Yes. So yes. really to revolt in the literal sense is to revolve. Yes. Is it, we're going to go back to something that's true, good, or beautiful, yeah. discover it as if it were for the first time in our own experience, mm -hmm. and then bring it to our families and our communities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to those of you who were able to view it. Uh, this has been Christopher Perrin and Anika Prather talking about the canon and a few other things. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for watching. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.